My name is Scott. I'm the senior pastor here. It's very, very good to be with you this morning. I uh, just came back from the men's retreat last night and wanted to give you kind of a report uh, what's going on up there. Uh, we had about 40 guys uh, go on the retreat when they all kind of finally arrived and, and got there. And it, it really has been a fantastic uh, weekend. Um, and there's a number of uh, reasons why some of you didn't go. Some of them are really, really valid. But I want to start uh, g- giving you a heads up for next year. Like this was our first time doing this and wanted to evaluate whether we're going to do it again next year. And it went so, so well. Uh, we're going to do it again. And so when we do, I just want to kind of share what the camp was like. Uh, because the older you get, the weirder you get about like going out of town. I know this is true. This guy told me uh, the other day, or today actually this morning, he said, uh, you know, I envisioned us like uh, in tents around a fire, you know, and I said, no, no, there's rooms. Like you're actually staying in a room. You've got a bed. There's a bathroom, you know, like uh, a couple guys, and then you've got a bathroom. You share with another room, and uh, the food is amazing. We had um, this cafeteria where this lady is a chef, literally trained at the Scottsdale Culinary Institute. So amazing food, nice accommodations, and the teaching was so phenomenal. Justin Anderson uh, was our teacher for the weekend and really, really got to the heart of some great stuff. So want to make you jealous to be there next year. It was fantastic. I know we're isolationists, men, right? We use up all the words that uh, we have in, in a given week at work, and, and it's hard, and you know, I don't, I don't want people up in my business, you're thinking, I don't want to like have to share, I don't want to have to connect or anything, but it's so needed, and that was kind of the takeaway for the weekend, I think, that everyone felt was how important this is. And so I want to encourage you, uh, when you hear, and we're going to be announcing it relatively soon, even though it might be a year from now, the date, uh, really, really plan on going with us next year. It was a really great time. Uh, today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 a little bit, but mainly chapter 1, verse 15 through 2-4. Uh, we just finished a series in the Psalms called Gospel Rhythm. We, of course, celebrated Easter last week and looked at 1 Corinthians 15. And then next week I'm preaching on adoption from the book of Romans. Um, as we prepare for uh, our time with uh, uh, excuse me, AZ-127, um, I wanted to preach on adoption and not just, hey, everyone adopt, but the theology of adoption, what the Bible says about adoption, that we are the adopted sons and daughters of God by grace. Therefore, what should the people who are adopted by God, by grace, we're not born into sonship and daughtership. We are brought in by grace, by what Jesus has done for us. And so in light of that adoption, that we're the adopted children of God, how then should the church care for uh, the adoption uh, adoption issues and people in the foster care system and so forth. So please be here next week. Then the following week after that, we're going to be uh, starting a new series in First Peter, one of the most powerful books in the New Testament. So First Peter in two weeks, adoption next week, and today uh, in Second Corinthians. Now, when you're choosing one Sunday, like I've got one Sunday, I get to choose any subject, any book of the Bible, uh, any passage, that kind of thing. And it's really hard to know what to, to pick, I got to be honest, just for one week. And I found myself drawn to this passage. Uh, we preached from 1 Corinthians for Easter. And in this passage, you've got the verse that has always stood out to me so much um, in chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. All of their promise, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And the word yes is capitalized in the English, and it's this idea that, yes, all of God's promises are found, they're yes in Christ. What does that mean? 
Now, in the context that Paul is writing about, I could have, I could have called this a number of different things, and, and the actual title of the sermon is just one stab at it, but it could have been like how to deal with difficult people. Uh, another stab at it could have been how to not be a difficult person. Uh, the other is like how to lead gospel leadership, how to lead difficult people, how to, be, how to not be a difficult leader, that kind of thing. So I start by asking you the question before we read some of the passage, do you have any difficult people in your life? And I know you're saying, duh, right? <laughs> the answer is not really, do you have difficult people? It's how many and what is it like? Do you have difficult people in your life? Do you have negative people, critical people, insecure people that therefore are oftentimes negative and critical, people who take things the wrong way no matter how nice you try to be or no matter how much you try to pursue them, people who listen to false reports about you, people who spread false reports about you, people who call your motivations into question. And that's exactly what Paul is dealing with in this passage. A group of people that are calling his motives into question, that are spreading reports about him that aren't true. And then we're going to get to peer into this passage and see how did he deal with people like this. So I want to read beginning in chapter 1, verse, uh, uh, starting in verse 3, just some background here, where Paul says this, writing to this church in Corinth, Multiple letters he's written them. Two of them made it into the Bible. And he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you hear a repeated word there? (laughs) Comfort, comfort, comfort. And another word that was mentioned in contrast is what? Afflicted. In affliction. Comfort in the midst of affliction. Now what's interesting, he's writing to comfort a people who feel afflicted by him. But in reality, he is the one who is living under a serious strain in affliction. We read right here. He said this, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we've set our hope that we will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So I'm about to share with you the context with why they're upset with Paul, but they're really, really upset with Paul. And I want to share, though, that he's actually going through this incredibly difficult time. When he said, like, they were burdened unto death, that's not hyperbole for Paul. You know that if you know that about his life. Paul was the guy who was out starting new churches for Christ, sharing the faith. His life was in constant danger. Uh, He was shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, and a ton of other stuff that Paul goes through. Disease, just you name it. The guy lived, lived the life, walked the walk, and talked the talk. And his life was often in peril. They are disappointed that he's not coming back for another visit to see them. 
That's their affliction. And it kind of reminds me of the new commercial that came out this year, and I know you've seen it, and it's that series of insurance commercials that goes like this. It's what you do. So it's like this. If you're a mom, you call at the wrong time. It's what you do. So there's that commercial. There's this guy. He's like a James Bond character. He's up on top of this huge building, and he's fighting bad guys. There's a helicopter coming, and he's shooting, and all of a sudden his phone rings, which he's not going to answer in real life, but he does. And it's his mom on the phone, and she has no idea that he's the CIA agent or whatever. And she says something like, well, the squirrels are back in the attic, and dad won't call the exterminator. You know, it's like, this is what reminds me of this context of this scenario of what's going on. Paul's out like literally writing in such a way that we're going to talk about it for the rest of our lives. Every generation to come of Christians is going to talk about Paul and this amazing journey he was on and the danger and the peril he lived. And they're upset because Paul's not coming back for another visit. The church in Corinth was an ongoing frustration for Paul. I mean, they really were. He'd spent a year and a half planting the church from scratch, and in spite of that fact, he had demonstrated his love and his commitment to them over and over and over. They kept complaining they questioned his authority. They weren't impressed with his preaching style. They preferred another guy named Apollos. I mean, there were celebrity preachers even back then, apparently. They listened to false teachers and, and truths that weren't things that were not true about Jesus, and they incorporated that in their faith. They ignored the needs of the poor. They allowed serious sin into the church. It was crazy. And then they started rumors that Paul was just after their money. How would... You respond to that. If you're Paul, you're legit. <laughs> you are living the life. And, and I would be so tempted to write them a letter, and it would be very brief. <laughs> Dear Corinthian church, get another apostle. See you later, the apostle Paul. Find somebody else. Do you like Apollos' preaching? Great, let him be your apostle. Get whoever, but I'm done with you. When you call me, I let it go to voicemail. And then I don't listen to the voicemail. When you message me on Facebook, I block you on Facebook. We're not even friends anymore. I don't know if you noticed and looked on our profile, but we're not even friends. Like, don't call, don't come near me, don't, you know, like they are so frustrating and so maddening. And yet Paul does not respond that way, if you notice. With such humility and such grace. And our main point today is this. It's up, up here. Because all of God's promises are yes to us in Jesus. We're called to live our lives as a yes for others, even difficult people. And this is what he shows us. Because all of God's promises are yes to us in Jesus, we therefore, if you really have his divine yes over you, are called to be a yes for others and to get, a, get over ourselves in a sense and to grow up into maturity and become a people that aren't just concerned about our own needs so much, but start living for other people as Paul is demonstrating to us as our good apostle. So um, we go on and, and read, picking up in verse 15 of chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, he says this, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to, to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. He was planning on going to them twice. He was going to go see them on his way to Macedonia, and he was going to come see them again on his way back from Macedonia. But things went bad during the first visit. We don't know what happened. They obviously got into some sort of conflict or argument, and it was so painful that he decided to take the long way home instead of going to see them again, and they got really, really upset about that. You can kind of understand why to some degree. 
their feelings were hurt. He said he was going to come on the first way and then back, but then he decided not to, and they're upset, and they're saying, oh, things like, uh, you said yes, and now you're saying no, and, and you're double-minded, and, and that kind of thing. So he goes on. I wanted to, do, to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea, back to Jerusalem. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? No. Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Salvinus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We'll pick up in a minute later. Paul had made this visit. It it went poorly. He decided not to come back. Now they're calling all of his uh, decisions into question. And they're upset with him. They're angry with him. And so there's a couple principles here. And there's a leadership truth of of all sorts, which is this. The greater the responsibility of your leadership, the more likely it is that people are going to call your decisions into question. You You know that's true, right? And all of us have leadership responsibilities at some level or another, at different points in our lives. Some greater than others. But the truth is, some of you are bosses. That's a form of leadership. If you're a parent, that's a form of leadership. If you're a student, just even the way you live your life around the other students is a form of leadership or lack thereof. Like Most of us have some leadership responsibility. And the greater your leadership responsibility grows over time, there is greater and greater degree of opportunity for people to misunderstand you, think your decisions are bad, talk about you, call your motivations into question, and so forth. And this is what's going on with Paul. It's scary stepping out to be a leader for the first time. And I can remember one of my first big leadership responsibilities was after college, and I'd become an intern at a large church in Indianapolis, a youth intern. And it was a huge church, and we had a huge youth program with hundreds of kids. And we had this this big program on Sunday night and a big program on Wednesday night. And on Wednesday night, it was all about teaching and deep Bible study and worship. And then the pastor, the, the, the main youth pastor, asked me, the intern, to go to this conference, but he sent me alone. And the conference was called How to Destroy Your Worship Ministry or Your, or your Youth Ministry Overnight. Not really. But that, that was my takeaway. Like the, what I did with what I learned at that conference, I came back and single-handedly made everybody just furious at me. And here's what happened. I, I went, and I'm young, and I hear all these great ideas. Instead of coming back and saying, oh, over time, and if I got buy-in from the, gr- the group and the leaders that have been serving here for years, maybe these would be a few good things to implement. But instead, I came back, and he gave me kind of carte blanche leadership, but I came back and just told everybody, guess what we're doing? <laughs> and won't this be great? Well, days later, there was a meeting uh, called where I was not invited. And, but my wife, my future wife was. She was one of the youth workers. And she came to me in tears saying, oh, you're in trouble. <laughs> like, 
Uh, they're calling all of your leadership into question and your motives. And that was the thing that hurt the most. It wasn't just that I was stupid, and I was. I was, that was being a bad leader. But that they were calling my motives into question. And that stung so much. So how, how can you possibly ever lead? How can you possibly do anything in life if, if when people hurt you like this, and it's very easy to just say, you know what, then I'm not going to do it. You know? But Paul leads with such power. How does he do it? There's a couple of things I want us to see that Paul does that are so helpful to us. And the first is this, and it's sort of in decision-making and leadership, but he lives with confidence because God is in control, and he knows that. We, we have a very high view of God's sovereignty in this church. We believe that God orders all things, that he's sovereign over all things, that he's the king of the universe, that we live day to day under his good providence. And, and I know philosophically, there's all kinds of questions like, well, what does that mean? And where does free will come from? We believe we have free will, and yet we believe that he, has, he, is, he is sovereign over every detail of our lives. And we believe that because Paul taught that in such detail in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, lots of other places. Paul gives us this high, high view of God and his sovereignty. And we see Paul living out his theology of God's sovereignty in the way he lives the practicality details of his life. He has to make decisions, and sometimes that hurts people's feelings, but he's living confidently under the reality that, that God is with him and God, God is sovereign over the details. How can you ever step out and make decisions in life? It's so difficult. And over the years, it's funny, I've had two or three really close friends that have just gotten so bound up in decision-making. I've, I've talked about one before, this friend we had back in the Midwest that was dating this amazing woman, but he just, it took him three-plus years to ask her to marry him because he was so bound up with fear about what if I don't marry the right woman? Because there's only one. A lot of Christians believe like because God is sovereign and he, he orders our life and providence is true and so forth, that there is, a, there is the one, right? And then every other decision is bad. And so you're trying to decide like, okay, who do I marry? What job do I take? Should we buy this house or this house? Should we serve here or not here? And so there's door A under that mentality, right? And behind door A is blessing. And God is with you under, behind door A because this is the way. This is, this is the one you should marry. This is the job you should take. This is the city you should live in, the house you should buy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Door A. And behind it's just blessing. But under, behind door B right here is, is curse. It is not God's will for your life. It's, if, you, if you marry the wrong person, it will be all bad because that's the good part. You know, that's the good decision. Door B is, is cursing, and, and God's not with you, and he's over here in door B, A. And then there's door C, which gets really complex because it's like, well, it's a little of both. Like, maybe it's a good decision, but not, but it's mixed. Good things will happen. Bad things will happen. I don't know. What do I do? What do I do? And people get so bound up with this idea, well, God is sovereign. There's one decision, and if I get it wrong, I've messed up my entire life. I've got great news for you. This is not how it is. God is sovereign, and St. Augustine had this great, this great idea where he basically said this. He said, love God and live as you please. 
And he's not saying do as you please, like do whatever you want and, and sin boldly. That's not what Augustine means. He said, if you actually love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, none of us do completely, but if that is the trajectory and aim of your life, you, you can be so committed in loving him that then you can go about the, the decisions of your life and not have to worry about it because you're so devoted to loving him, you can get freed up from like, well, what if I make a mistake? Because here's the great thing. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, all of God's promises find their yes in him. So guess what's behind door number one, A? Yes. God's divine blessing and yes is behind this decision. But I've got great news for you. It's also God's blessing. If you love God, if, you're, if the pursuit of your life and the trajectory of your life is to love him, serve him, and love other people as much as you love yourself, then guess what? Behind door B is also yes. His divine blessing is with you. In a, behind door A, behind door B, and the reality is every door is door C. Door A is actually door C. I, I hope you're tracking with me. Because here, door C is what? It's good and it's bad. It's hard. Okay, you, you marry girl A or boy A, it's actually over here because it's not all good. It's actually a lot of good and a lot of blessing, but it's also really, really hard. And same with door B, girl A, girl B, job A, job B. It's gonna be really hard and yet God is with you in the midst of it. No, and, and, and it's good and it's bad and it's, it's just life. Are you tracking with me? So how do you make decisions? You make it under the understanding that God is in control and every door you open, of course, is gonna have blessing and it's gonna have difficulty, but God is with you and all of his promises are yes for you in Jesus. Even when life gives you no's. Next, we see Paul leading with such humility. Just such humility. I was at a at a luncheon a few years ago, actually, and uh, there was this speaker named Bill Wellens, and, and he said this, the leader that God uses greatly embraces humility as the premier virtue. The leader that God uses greatly embraces humility as the premier virtue. And I would say for Christians, love is the ultimate virtue and ethic, but humility is so connected to love, I can't dis you know, disconnect the two. Humility. If you're going to be used greatly by God, you have to be humble. There's no other way. There's no, Jesus said that constantly, that the last shall be first. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you'll be last of all and servant of all. And one of the greatest stumbling blocks for any leader is the power that comes with that responsibility. But Paul, in Paul, we see such humility as he loves and shepherds these hard, difficult people. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24, but as God is my witness, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming to you again. Not that we lord it over you, your faith, but we work with you for your joy. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, <laughs> there's a, a difficult thing. And if you're actually going to be a humble leader, then you're working for people's joy. But there's a problem in that because we're all people pleasers, are we not? All of us want the applause and the approval of people. But if you're going to work for people's joy, you're actually going to get people to not like you very much because people don't want you working for their joy. They want you working for what? Their happiness. And that's a different thing. 
to work for somebody's joy is much different than working for somebody's happiness. And if you parent, you know this is true. Every parent has had this experience. I'm going to throw my boys under the bus for a minute. But like when they were little, they all three of them said something like this to me at one point, probably a thousand times. I'm so angry at you right now. And I would stoop down, you know, and say, why are you angry? You know, and they'd say, because whatever it was, whatever came next was because you're not making me happy. I'm so mad at you. Okay, I understand that. But why? why? Because dot, 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 you're not giving me what I want, when I want. You don't want to make me happy. And then I'd get all philosophical on them, you know, and I'd stoop down. And you don't want to be, you don't want your dad to be a pastor. It's not good <laughs> for many reasons. But I would stoop down and say, I don't care. I don't care if you're angry, and I really don't care if you're not happy, because I care for your joy and your holiness, and they're like, oh, whatever, you know, so, but, but that's the point. Paul's saying, I work not for your happiness, I'm working for your joy, for your growth and your faith, that's, that's what he says, but that takes humility. 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I don't know if you know this, Paul did not come out of the gate a humble leader. He, come out, he came out of the gate a jerk. Worse than that. He persecuted the church. He hated Christians. He was killing Christians for a living. That's not a good man. He goes from persecuting the church to loving a, a difficult church. And how did he do that? Because unlike any other man that I've read about in life, he became a man who lived under the divine yes of God. What do I mean by that? That all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And so when all of the rest of life was a no for him, he still lived under the umbrella, but God is a yes. But the rest of us, nearly all of us, this is what we do. When somebody is a a no for us, no, I reject you. No, I will not marry you. No, I will not go out with you. No, we don't want you in this organization any longer. We're firing you. Uh, you know, whatever your no that you receive, and we all get thousands and not millions in our life. What we often do is take that circumstance, that no, that little no, and we capitalize it or supersize it and we make it a divine no and say, well, because these things are no, because she's a no, because he's a no, because that job's a no, because that house was a no, whatever it is, that means God is a no for me. And that I'm not getting people to please me, I'm not getting this, I'm not getting this, that means therefore I must be a no from God. And that is an insecure way to be living your life, and it's not living your life according to the gospel, and that's what they're doing. They're taking Paul's little no, like, hey, that was really rough. I, I'm, I'm not going to come through this time, as an utter rejection from Paul, but not just from Paul, but from God himself. And so his great concern from them is, just because I had to say no to this trip, don't take that as meaning God's not for you, because all of God's promises are yes to you in Jesus right? And if you think about it, nearly every conflict we have in life kind of starts out like this. We want something from someone or we expect something from someone, right? And they say no. 
They may not say no, but their actions are no, or I'm expecting you to behave this way, but you, you didn't know about that expectation, so you're a no in the way you're behaving or acting, or I ask something of you and you say no, or you ask something of me. And so because of that no or that expectation that doesn't get met, we then get really angry or fearful or upset, and then that leads to some sort of conflict between people. And what we so profoundly need in our life is to, regardless of whatever no's we're getting from people, even people that we really need yeses from, like a spouse or a child or a boss or whatever, but we've got this trump card, and I know that's a very tainted word right now, trump, but like, (laughs) forgive me, but, and it's the divine yes of Jesus. Because Jesus is a yes for us, that all of God's promises and everything in, in the Bible is a, divi- is a yes in Jesus, that I want your yes, but I don't have to have it. I, every time I preach, there's this weird thing, right, where I'm, I'm up here to tell you the truth and so forth, and I'm trying to be humble and trying not to be about it, but part of me is going, I want you to like me, right? I can't help it. It's the human condition. But it's okay to want your approval, but I don't need it because I have Jesus' yes. If you're a no to me, that would be really, really hard, I have to admit. But I, I don't need it in the same way that I should, might have otherwise because I have Jesus' yes. Think about how, how your marriage would be, right, if you would actually live this way. That every time your spouse is a no because of expectations or decisions or literally just no, you said that's a bummer, but I have Jesus' yes. I want your approval. I want your yes. I want intimacy with you. I want a better relationship with you. I want physical intimacy. I want emotional intimacy, whatever that is, but I actually have a yes of Jesus, and his intimacy is better, and so I want yours, and I'm going to work towards yours, and we're coming in together, but I have your divine, I have this divine yes, but what happens is we so often take your no and your no or my no, and then we supersize that, magnify it, amplify it, and say that means God is a no, the whole universe is against me, and life is horrible. And instead, we have to start with God's yes for us and let that trickle down in the reality of living our life in the details and all the relationships. And this is what we see Paul doing so, so beautifully. I read it to us again from verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Since Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, God begins this series of promises. We call it the covenant of grace in our theology. There's a covenant of works. Do this and you'll live. Just don't eat from that one tree. I know it looks really good and it probably smells great, but don't eat it. If you do, you'll die. You and everyone you know. And that one law, hey, just don't do that. After that, we broke it. Everything fell apart. Everybody fell apart, the fall. And ever since then, God went into the divine yes mode of grace, saying, I will make a covenant of grace. And he made all these promises, beginning with Eve, one of your sons will crush Satan's head. That's a promise. And then it keeps going. Guess who that son was? It was Jesus. Promise, promises to Abraham, promises to Isaac, promise to Jacob, promise, you know, it keeps going, Moses, David, we could go through the whole Old Testament, promise, 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 and they all find their yes in Jesus. 
The whole Old Testament's pointing to Jesus. And then we look back in faith. The whole New Testament, of course, is also about Jesus. It's all about, it's all about Jesus and what God has done for us in him. Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm saying to you, you're living like people who've gotten a no from God and you have not. All of our insecurity, all of our anger, all of our fear, all of our control, we have to micromanage everything and know everything and I gotta have this and if I don't have this, like it's because in a sense what we're saying is this, that no in life means a no from God and, and we're not living in light of the fact that ultimately, regardless of your circumstances, and you're like, but I don't understand. If God's a yes for me, then why is my life so hard? Now, I don't know that one. You know, you can go to, you should see counseling on that, but like the answer will be, I don't know exactly why, but regardless of the details, I still know this. God is a yes for you. In Jesus Christ. But you're living like people who've gotten a no from God and from me, Paul says. But all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus. And we cry out in our hearts and our life saying, do you actually love me, God? Because the circumstances of my life feel like no. The job said no. She said no. He said no. My financial picture is saying no. But God cries out, Yes, I love you. Are you for me? Yes, I'm for you. Can I trust you? I want, I want to trust you. Yes, you can trust me. Have you really forgiven me? And then there's the big one. After all I've done, after all the brokenness I've caused, after all the ways I just keep returning the same stuff, can you actually forgive me and love me in the midst of that? And, and God is screaming, yes, yes. All my promises are true in Jesus. Yes. When I see you, I see you and you're beautiful. You know, I created you. I love you. But I see Jesus in you because he's, we just read about it. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed. That means given to you as a gift into your life. God no longer sees you robed in sin. He sees, the Father sees you robed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news, man. And so he's a yes for you because you're, you're like his son to you. And I've asked you this a hundred times. Do you believe that God the Father loves God the Son? Do you? That's how much God the Father loves you. Have you really adopted me as your own? Have you really made things right with me? Yes, yes, yes. Listen. This is the divine yes that Paul lived under and that he preached and he lived. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. There's only, you know this. There's only one human being that was without sin, Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God took all of our sin and put it on him. He was not sin. He did not know sin. He committed no sin. You and I sin. He puts it on Christ who was without sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That, that is the heartbeat of the gospel. And here's another way to say it in the, in the way we're talking about today is this, is this. The Father said no to Jesus in order to say yes to us. 
The Father said no to Jesus Christ in order that his yes would always be yes to us. You remember in the garden when, when Christ comes and he's, he's crying and weeping so violently that there's blood in his tears and he says, if it is possible, would you let this cup pass from me, Father? And the Father says what? No. And in that moment, if he had said yes to Jesus, he would have said no to us, but instead he said no to Jesus in order that his yes would always be yes for us. And I've got good news for you that Jesus willingly and joyfully said yes to the Father in that moment because he always did what the Father asked of him joyfully. And although he said this in the passage, not my will be done, your will be done. In that moment, in his humanity, not his divinity, but Jesus is fully God, fully man, and in that moment, in his humanity, he is so tempted to say, no, I can't do it, and go to the cross. But the Father says no to Jesus in order that he'd be a yes to us, and yet we doubt his love so much. And I plead with you, friends, this is the issue in your marriage. This is the issue at work for you. This is the issue when you get up just filled with angst and fear and self-loathing and and shame and all that. This is the answer. You're living as if your life is a no from God and from everyone else. But if you have his yes, there's a sense in which you can say, I don't care what anyone else says. When I have his yes, it doesn't matter what, what the world says. If I have his yes, it doesn't matter what they say about me at work. If I have his yes, it doesn't matter what my ex-wife says about me. It, if I have his yes, it doesn't matter what happened with my ex-husband. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like his yes trumps all other no's. If he did not withhold his own son, how much more will he give us, Paul says. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you and praise you that in Jesus Christ, all of your promises are yes and are true in Jesus. Help us to be a people who grow in maturity and in faith and in joy, not in happiness, but in true joy, realizing that even when we don't get what we think we need or want in this life, we get far beyond that. We get what we need powerfully and that we have you and that you are ordering and ruling our life, you're sovereign, and you're with us, and we have the banner of your yes over our life. We thank you for that. In Jesus' good name, amen.